Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Art Gallery. Thank you for being here. My name's Brian Knott. I'm one of the volunteer guides at the gallery. This year, there and the last few years, there's been a bit of a revival of interest in women Australian artists, and uh, this one fits into that sort of mood. There's been a couple of major exhibitions interstate, and a number of books have come out about Australian women as artists, a little under-represented in the gallery walls at times. So coming through the gallery one day, about a month ago, I suddenly saw this on the wall and I thought, I have never seen this before in my life. It doesn't remind me of anybody. What is it? And then looking at the gallery label, Mary Coburn Mercer, born in Britain and died in France, and yet this work was painted in Melbourne. And I thought, this is already really rather intriguing. So I decided to do a little bit of research on it and it was like falling down the rabbit hole. It was just amazing. The woman herself, I'm surprised there hasn't been a TV mini-series about this woman. Someone said in one of the notes that I read that she led a very full life. That's a bit like saying uh, Gina uh, Reinhardt has a little bit of money. She is classed as an Australian uh, artist because she was born actually in Scotland when her mother was back home visiting the family. So she actually was the third daughter of William Coburn Mercer, who was a pioneer settler in, the, in Western Victoria. So she comes from a quite wealthy family. She spent her childhood in rural Victoria. And one of her childhood friends was Theo Schlitt, who remained a friend for the rest of her life. He ended up becoming a gallery owner in London, and it's his son, Roland, who comes into the story about 100 years later in 1999. So her mother took Mary to London, to Italy first, and then on to London to finish off her education. She was already interested in art. Um, one source says that the parents had separated by this time, but I couldn't find a corroboration of that anywhere else. Anyway, she went off to London and at the age of 17, uh, ran off to Paris. And not just Paris, she went off to Montparnasse uh, at the age of 17. I mean, it was enormously courageous at this time for women artists to be an artist, to try and be an artist full time. For this 17-year-old girl to race off I can't find any information about how her mother reacted to that, but I think if she does that at 17, when she's a halfway around the world, I think even if her mother did get her back, she was going to lose her again pretty soon afterwards. So she starts mixing with Marc Chagall, Picasso, Marie Lawrence, and the whole Bohemian Paris uh, School of Art. She's there in 1908, where the most the famous uh, Banquet Rousseau, which was when Picasso found Rousseau uh, in a market selling his paintings for the canvas to be reused. And he recognized him as an artist. And there's this famous uh, 
dinner that he gave to introduce him to the rest of the uh, Paris set, I suppose. Um, and it's only famous because of the number of names that were at that dinner. And here's Mary Coburn Mercer joining them at the age of 26. There's a bit of a hole in the uh, information after that. And almost everything I did find seemed to all lean, lead back to an article by Joan Kerr in the Design and Art Australia Online. Everything I'd looked up seemed to be sometimes almost direct quotes from this one single article. So she's like a lot of Australian women artists who have been forgotten and there really isn't much information about them. Uh, Clem Gorman and Therese Gorman have published this book that's made a little, a little splash, Intrepid, Australian women artists in early 20th century France. And when they went to France chasing up some of these women artists, they found even in France there was almost no mention of them in the archives. And a lot of these Australian women became very, very successful uh, in Paris, not in the established art circle. You have to remember, we, we think of the Impressionists and Picasso and all of those people, but at the same time, there was the academy and a very formal art education going on. In Paris, there were a number of uh, schools, and one of the most famous of those was the Academy La Haute, where they were talking about new movements, and they were, uh, he was teaching about Cubism. So uh, Mary, in 1920, 1938, she becomes uh, employed there, translating for the English students. And students are coming to this academy from all over the world, from China, from Japan, from the US. She's in a hotbed of activity, and she's having a well of a time, presumably. The studio, La Haute, was, was pushing his synthetic cubism, his ideas of dynamic symmetry, other Australians like Grace Crowley, Dorrit Black, and Angar, they all turned up in this studio as well. So he, he had a, quite an influence on Australian artists, and these were the women who brought these modernist ideas back to Australia. Around 1920 to 1922, she starts building a villa in Cassis in France with uh, Alexander Robinson, an American painter. And in 1922, she moves there to live and around that area she's doing watercolours and oils of landscape following a lot of the ideas that she's picked up from La Hope, the things she was helping to instruct. But also in the 1920s, this is when the woman starts to becoming the subject for a 10-part miniseries. Also in the 1920s, at the same time, she becomes involved with Janet Cambray Stewart, and it's described as an intimate relationship. She's another Australian artist who was born about a year or so after Mary, so very similar in age, and she also uh, was born in Hamburg when her parents were visiting this is when the rabbit hole starts to turn into a rabbit warren. The stories just build and build. Her grandparents were from a, a very wealthy family, the Michaelis Halenstein industrialists. There were three brothers. This has got nothing to do with the painting. There were three brothers who were sent off to London to get into training in uh, the business world. And eventually, one after another, 
they end up emigrating to Australia for the gold rushes. And then uh, they all become involved with Mary Mountain, a woman on the farm, and the three boys fall in love with her. And it's out of this complex relationship that Mary Janet Cumbray-Stewart ends up in Australia from a very wealthy family, um, the youngest of 10 children, and she grows up mainly in Gladstone in Queensland. She goes to the Melbourne National Gallery School one of her teachers is Fred McCummard, 1909, very early in her career. She has uh, quite a success already with the uh, Victorian Art Society and in 1922 goes off to Europe. And there she ends up exhibiting with the Royal Academy in, in London, the Paris Salon. She's uh, involved in the Venice Biennale. So she's a big international success. So she travels around Europe, uh, France and Italy with her girlfriend, publicist, business manager. She has a business manager, so obviously her success is going very well, who was named, I love this, Miss Argmore Farrington Belairs, Farrington with a double F, commonly called Bill. When Janet is having an intimate affair with Mary, they decide to go off to Italy and they stay at a villa on the Isle of Capri, which just happens to be next door to the English writer Compton Mackenzie, who in 1928 publishes a novel called Extraordinary Women, which is a satire on the fashionable lesbian set in Capri. Not content with that, Mary then becomes involved of visiting the Canary Islands. She becomes involved with a German photographer who's the son of a wealthy industrialist, and they head off to Spain. In Spain, of course, they get caught up in the Spanish Civil War, and the photographer is called back for military service. She's lucky enough to get on one of the last ships out of Spain and ends up eventually halfway across the world in Tahiti for a few months, and shortly after that meets in Fairweather in an island just off Guam. She goes back to Australia in uh, 1938, spends a couple of months at the George Bell Art School and then opens up her own apartment to teach art as well. She met Lisa Bryans at an Ear Fairweather exhibition and Lena Bryans happens to be the woman who has donated this painting to the Art Gallery of South Australia in uh, 1984. So Janet Cambray-Stewart is another very colourful artist, becomes involved with William Freighter. Um, she's described as an exciting and forceful woman who wore mannish tweeds and talked of Europe. That's the description of one of the Australian artists that she's mixing with. So Mary Coburn Smith decides to go back to France at the end of the war and uh, to sell the villa at Cassis. She has severe arthritis and she's forced to give up painting. And so for the last 10 years of her, her life, she decides to study uh, Russian for the first time. She's already quite fluent in French and Italian. And she sold her house in Cassis, the, the Cassis Villa, and uh, built a small house in the grounds of a convalescent home and died there in 1968 at the age of 81. 
while she was still in uh, Melbourne in 1951, Lisa Bryant's cousin comes across from New Zealand and he has an introduction to Mary. When he meets her, she has a broken leg. This is 1951, no money, and uh, she's charging three shillings an hour for two hours of tuition each in the afternoon. So he spends about four and a half days with her mornings in the, in the National Gallery and the conversation. He says that from her, he really learnt how to be a painter, all the implications, the solitary confinement that makes a painter's life. I remember her with great affection and gratitude, he says. And I mention McCann because we have one of his paintings here in the gallery that the director, Jana, talked about, and she uh, describes him as the most popular contemporary artists in New Zealand. So he says that he learnt more from her in four and a half days than he had ever learnt before. So when Mary goes back to France in 1951, she invites Lena Bryant, who had a few lessons with her. She's invited to visit her at Cassis, if you dare, she says. When uh, Mary left Australia, she left a whole pile of her Australian paintings with Lena Bryant's, and that's how we end up with this donation in the gallery. Um, Mary is forgotten for a long time, and then Russell Davis in 1975, no, around 1972, he found uh, half a dozen paintings that just had this mysterious MCM on the bottom and started doing, doing research. And after three years, in 1975, he held a, a retrospective of her work. In 1999, so we have 84 this donation, then 99, we get back to Roland Schitt. Do you remember him? And behind the wardrobe in his parents' home in Wimbledon, he finds this huge stack of paintings that belonged to Mary. All her life she had collected, she had quite a collection of paintings from the Paris School of Artists, and uh, she had a reputation for being quite generous and gregarious, a, a great hostess. She often seemed to buy paintings, sometimes to help out artists who needed it. But amongst this, there are a whole pile of uh, sketches and paintings. The National Gallery of Australia brought a whole collection of these in, in uh, 2001. So if we finally leave that fascinating story of the artist, perhaps we can look at the painting instead. But then it goes down another Warren hole. This is based on a, a novel by one of the main uh, figures in Italian literature after the war, Gabriele D'Annunzio, an international reputation. He was sometimes called the poet or the prophet. His work was respected all over the world. But he was part of the, the decadent, uh, the French symbolism, the British aestheticism mu movement. Um, he was against as usual in art history, it was turning against naturalism of the preceding romantics. So the spiritual, morbid, erotic world this, um, that Gabrielle commanded attention in, in the world of literature, sensual, mystical, he became incredibly attractive to women, so he became uh, notorious for his affairs as well as his, his work. And then when the war started, he made speeches encouraging 
Italy to enter the war and gave up literature and becomes a national war hero. He uh, joined the RDT stormtroopers. He'd taken on a test flight with Wilbur Wright and became fascinated with aircraft. So he became a pilot fighter, crashed the plane, lost the sight in one eye. But he was also part of the famous flight over Vienna where he led nine planes, 700 miles return trip to drop leaflets over enemy Vienna. One of the commentators was unkind enough to suggest that he didn't bother having the leaflets translated, but that's beside the point. Big, grand, uh, impressive, uh, which was his style all along the way. Then at the Paris Peace Conference, there was a town called uh, Fumo. There was a town that had such a mixed population that it was left almost isolated and Denuncio decided, sorry, yes, Denuncio decided that there should be Italian so he took a horde of troops and invaded the town and set up the, a new mini empire there, called himself Duce. The, the fundamental uh, principle of the constitution was music, but he also had a, a side of him. One of his quotes in articles leading up to this was something about the plebs are always slaves and they'll never have the feelings of freedom uh, within them. In his own little township, he introduced the idea of the speech from the balcony, the black shirts, the big parades, all of the hints that Mussolini took up and developed even further. So um, when Mussolini is rising in power and uh, this war hero is still getting far too much attention, we're not sure whether he was pushed out of a window or whether he fell when he was drunken. But anyway, he ends up in hospital and is no longer a figure politically. And eventually, the Italian army doesn't want to cause a big stir, so they let things go until eventually the republic sort of fades into nothing. He had written a book. He was one of Mary's favorite authors. She read him in the original Italian. And one of his books was The Virgins of the Rocks or The Maidens of the Rocks. And the, the prologue, this, this book, I've read one description of it saying that it is wonderfully poetic. Um, one of them says it's also very hard to get your head around what's going on. One of them says there's almost no plot line. It's all about emotions and feelings. The prince has returned to this country garden in the prologue where these three girls are waiting. He's looking for someone who is going to be good enough to bear his child who is going to be the new man. He's bred a bit of Nietzsche. And so these three women are waiting in the garden and one of them is Violante, nostalgic. She is a call to decadent beauty and pleasure. Uh, she's supreme and inaccessible, the femme fatale. Beautiful as only those who are one step away from death can be. There's no other indication in the story that she's anywhere near death, but that doesn't matter. She is getting high on these dizzying, precious perfumes, almost becoming addicted to them. She's also described as a humiliated princess with a, her crown of long hair, beautiful, haunty, sensual. Anatolia, the second one, is given the strength of a beneficent and powerful virgin, the rich and generous soul. She's also 
talking about her duty to her demented mother and her sick brothers, so her family values, she's not going to be free to, uh, to do anything. She's going to stay and look after the family. The third one is Massa Miller, who is reading a book emanating a pure breath of sacredness like a sensor that spreads its fragrance in the church. This is the tone of all of the writing. The dream in which she had immersed herself, her vows, she's decided that she's going to join a nunnery and this is her last day of freedom. So sensitive above all else. So this aesthetic contemplation of the three women, they're evaluated and examined as works of art rather than people. Now, um, Mary Coburn Mercer painted this when she was in Melbourne and because of the war she was trapped and could no longer return to Europe. So there's this wistful feeling of being away from the action here amongst these three figures. This wonderful um, cool colour. She's full of the influences of European art and so we keep on having these references, you know, are they the three graces, are they the three gorgons? Um, and the, the cool a colour palette of the whole thing, except for the, the redhead here. And when we get to the La Haute experience, La Haute talked about having a framework underneath, and often they would encourage the artist to draw up a grid, and then the painting was fitted into these, this grid work that was supposed to give the whole thing a structure that held it together. And I think you can see that influence in here, although you've got these, this sort of cubist influence, but Mary Coburn Smith never gave up the representativeness of it all. So they're waiting in the, in the garden. There is the, the fountain behind them. Some of the writers uh, equate the horses with freedom and passion. And then you notice the feet up above. Uh, are they the feet of her Robinson, the, the man she built the house in Cassis with? Um, is it uh, the Christ figure is obviously suggested, the crucifixion? And then we have the lamb, the lamb of God with this pretty pink ribbon, the sacrifice, and the, the flowers, the roses of purity, this whole air of waiting. All three of them in the book are described as waiting for their bridegroom. They know he's coming, they apparently don't know why, but they're all feeling, he, the, the narrator of the novel, um, suggests that they all are all waiting, and there's certainly that feeling here. I think that's enough for one day. <laughs> Thank you very much. If you've got any questions, I'll try to answer them. I just kept getting lost with these people. As far as the narrator in the novel is concerned, it seems as if he is looking for someone to produce his child, and these are three vessels waiting for him to choose, and uh, he, he will decide. At the end of the novel, he hasn't made a choice, and it was, it was a project that was going to be three more novels, and the next one was going to be uh, when the decision is made. He never wrote that, so we'll never know. Mary had a little lamb as the other <laughs> connotation. I mean, you play games with this because uh, like his novel, it's not clear. I mean, obviously the, the waiting and what are they waiting for is really clearly representative. And if she is talking about the uh, turning this boredom of everyday life into high art while she's trapped in Melbourne, perhaps that's what's going on. But I mean, this looks like a religious painting, doesn't it? And it, the title, you can't help but think of, um, uh, not Leonardo da Vinci, who's the, the Virgin of the Rocks, the, the classic painting. And that's a painting that has um, 
slight mysteries about it too, and it's referenced, it's referred to glancingly all the way through his novel, just in, in slight references. As far as I know, Mary uh, Coburn Mercer never made any clear statement of the, the painting, but there is so little information about these women, and uh, you know, the, everything I find leaves with questions that I'd love to get a bit more detail about. Yeah. But a fascinating story of, um, of women at that period, the number of Australian women at that time who were prepared to, I mean, we're talking about a boat trip that takes forever. And at a time when a woman to be an artist was slightly disreputable. And even in France, where they'd only just opened the academy, up until then, women could not join the academy because they might have to paint a nude. And if you don't paint a nude, I mean, that's, that's too... Uh, dangerous for a war to, um, you know, to, I don't know, it, it, women can't do that. And if women can't study the, the human body, then they can't do history paintings, which are the height of the art world at the time. And so, you know, they're pushed down. So Mary Mercer actually started painting nudes uh, and started painting the body when she came in contact with um, Janet Cumbrae Stewart. She had uh, she was renowned for, for painting the female figure in uh, in pastels with so much depth that often they looked like oil colours. And she painted women um, sometimes nude, but not uh, in a sexual way. It was sort of denying the male gaze of what was happening in art at the time. She ended up getting uh, an order of award of the Order of Merit, the Order of Australia for her contribution to art, in particular in landscapes, but most art historians in Australia see her great value in that she did a portraits of about 27, I don't know how many now, Australian artists. So her portraits are what she's actually remembered for more today. This, this is a rabbit hole. This is an absolute rabbit, Warren. Thank you very much for coming.